Thank you, Susan. Thoughts for the day. So, um, okay, I'm going into a little bit of a theology thing today, um, but I hope it won't be too painful. And I hope it will be helpful. In a, in a recent uh, pastor's update, I said beginning in February when I turned 70, I'll be working for Blue Ocean half-time instead of full-time. Advantage to the church, lower payroll. Advantage to me, frees up time to do more writing, which I love to do. So I'm working on a new approach to the so-called clobber text, those handful of passages used against LGBTQ people. We don't need to go over those here because that's a resolved issue in our church. Thank the Lord. Um, but I, today I want to rehearse what I have in mind for this book briefly, then get on to my point today. So it'll be a little dodgy at the beginning. I, I'm not even going to mention the clobber text, though. Here's my angle on this uh, book I'm working on. So progressive Christians, we're like progressive Christians, I guess, object to traditional interpretations when it's clear that these interpretations cause harm uh, toward women or whatever the issue might be. But they can only point to progressive Christians, that is, a.k.a. people like us, uh, can only point to a few proof texts about this harm issue, like love doesn't harm the neighbor. Conservative cr Christians typically reply, well, our traditional reading is just tough love. It prevents the lasting harm of spending eternity apart from God. In fact, though, ancient Judaism was very much concerned with the problem of harm harm to people in this life, not the next. But this concern is rooted in Israel's ancient writings, Genesis, Exodus, and especially Leviticus. So it's rooted in the temple worship rituals and in the food laws and other things that Christians consider pretty much irrelevant or even like kind of ridiculous. So my thesis, that we've lost the Jewish concern for the problem of harm, which is actually meant to be prominent if we have eyes to see it, revolves around the historical fact that very early in its history, Christianity was taken over by voices that were deeply anti-Jewish. Within a few hundred years, this is like horrible, but it's, a, it's an historical fact, a Jewish believer in Jesus, and there were many in that period, were actually forbidden from embracing both their Jewish identity and Jewish practices, like keeping kosher, observing the Seventh-day Sabbath, uh, practicing circumcision with their, um, with their infant boys. When you deny a person their identity and the practices that go along with that identity, you're doing a very harmful thing. You're seeking to erase their existence. So, in today's politics, we know that the, the big lie led to the violence of January 6th in our capital. Christianity's historic big lie is that Judaism has been replaced by Christianity. Without the big lie, um, that big lie, the Holocaust could not have happened, not to put too fine a point on it. So Christianity's original othering crime, meaning turning a group of people into a dismissed other, is its anti-Judaism. And this set the pattern for other otherings. Um, fortunately, the institutional church, the historic Christian churches have been trying to come out from under this anti-Judaism ever since the Holocaust revealed just how dangerous this anti-Jewish bias is and what it can lead to. 
The church has made great strides in this regard in recent decades, but certain problems take a long time to acknowledge, let alone unlearn. Christianity is like a recovering alcoholic in the early stages of omitting its anti-Judaism, like its original sin, and has made life unmanageable. Facing this is part of saving Christianity from being used to harm others and then denying the harm that was done, indirect violation of its namesake. So, of course, our sacred readings are Jewish writings. Jesus and Paul, Paul's responsible for about a third of the New Testament writings. Jesus and Paul were Torah observant Jews uh, who were circumcised, who kept the food laws, who observed the Sabbath. They identified as Jews and they practiced Judaism. So as Torah observant Jews, they would have been driven out of the church, certainly by the fourth century. That is strange. After World War II and the Holocaust, Christian scholars have emphasized the Jewishness of Jesus. And now at last, the same thing is happening in the scholarly world with Paul. Paul is not a Jewish person who converted to Christianity. He's not a former Jew, but a Torah observant Jew following Jesus. So if you're intrigued by all this, our next Deeper Dive Theology book group is studying Paul Was Not a Christian, a provocative title by Pamela Eisenbaum, a Jewish scholar of the New Testament. So anyway, because early Christian interpreters of scripture had absorbed and adopted this anti-Jewish bias, which was, you know, kind of in the air in the ancient world, the meaning of key words used in these Jewish writings were lost or distorted deeply. You know, words are slippery things. Their meaning changes over time. When people who didn't understand their original meaning start using them in different ways, they can change the meaning of the words to fit their ideology. And this happened with some really important words. Today we'll focus on two of them, the Greek word sozo, which you would spell in English S-O-Z-O, which is often translated saved, and the Greek word eon, A-E-O-N, would be the English transliteration of the Greek word eon, often translated forever, or its adjective form um, eternal. So we can now demonstrate that these common English translations saved in the evangelical sense, and eternal, stray from their original Jewish context. And this has like huge implications. Today, if you ask the average person uh, with, with maybe like a passing knowledge of religion, what does it mean when Christians speak of being saved? That average person will answer, well, they mean converting to Christianity, or maybe they might say saved from hell. This belief is justified by bad English translations of two Greek words, which I've already mentioned, sozo and eon, or the adjective for, um, form of eon is ionios, A-I-O-N-I-O-S, be the English version of ionios. Let's start with this first mistranslation, eternal, and I promise you this is going somewhere good. The word translated eternal in most English translations of the New Testament is ionios. It's an adjective. What kind of life? Eternal life. The noun form of the adjective is eon, from which we get the English, duh, eon. <laughs> that should be a hint. 
eon in English means age or a long time. Or if you, I could say, well, I ran a 435 mile an eon ago. It wouldn't be that long ago, but, it, you know, relatively speaking. But it doesn't mean eternity as in time that goes on forever. <laughs> Did you notice how I sneaked in the fact that I ran a 435 mile? I'm just naughty. That's, that's just a bad social habit I have. Eon in Greek doesn't mean eternity. It doesn't mean time without end. So the New Te Testament was written in Greek, but Greek is a step removed from the language Jesus spoke, which was Aramaic. Aramaic. Aramaic was like a variant form of Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic. He read Hebrew. He may not have uh, spoken or read Greek. There's no word in Hebrew that naturally means eternity. That's the thing. The word in Aramaic that Jesus would have used is Alma, A-L-M-A in Aramaic, uh, Olam, O-L-A-M in Hebrew. So Alma, Olam, means something like at a, at a distance, on the far horizon. It doesn't mean forever, eternal, or never-ending. The Greek word, remember Greek is the first language of the New Testament, is eon. It means age, like the Bronze Age, or the Information Age, or the Age of Aquarius. We might say, well, wait, if you were a Bible nerd, you might say, wait, the Psalms were written in Hebrew, and in Psalm 23, doesn't it end? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But that word in Hebrew is olam. Robert Alter and the New Revised Standard Version translates this, surely goodness and mercy will follow me my whole life long. Now, why do so many older English translations use forever? Because it's traditional, not because it's accurate. Because Psalm 23 is used at funerals and forever is a, a bigger comfort in a, in, at a funeral. So, and because Christian scholars haven't been well-tuned in to Hebrew and the importance of the Hebrew meaning of Hebrew words. There are only three verses in the New Testament that could possibly be translated eternal punishment. And the word is the adjective form of eon, ionio, that goes eternal. It's a word that refers to a limited period of time. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. That's like the standard teaching about what hell is, eternal conscious torment. That's a horrible doctrine. It's one that could only be executed by a God I don't ever want to be close to. And it cannot be justified by the meaning of the original language of the New Testament. So that's interesting. We're getting somewhere. Now we turn, at least I think so. Now, it's, it's really weird, weird giving a sermon when you don't hear people talking back to you. So I'm just trusting that this is helpful. Now we turn to the word often translated saved or sozo, S-O-Z-O in the Greek of the New Testament. In evangelical speak, the word saved is used to refer to conversion. As in, I was saved in May 1971 when I dedicated my life to Christ. I did dedicate my life to Christ in 1971. But the Greek word sozo doesn't mean conversion as in getting saved as evangelicals use it. 
That's a later meaning that is imposed on the word by evangelical usage. So sozo is a word with multiple meanings depending on the context. It can mean cured, protected, healed, spared. There's a Jewish scholar whose primary field of study is the letters of Paul uh, named Mark Nanos. I also learned this from an affirming pastor in uh, Toledo, Don Shiver, who's kicked out of the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is really a badge of honor, I think. Um, quoting Nanos, though, the Greek word sozo, often translated saved, is normally used for protecting or keeping safe. The word was not used to refer to some, someone or something that had been lost, being returned or saved in the evangelical salvation sense that has come to denote convert, converted in common parlance. So the core meaning of sozo, according to Nanos, is protect, keep safe from harm. So even though the word sozo has been hijacked to mean saved in the sense of converted to Christianity or saved from hell or eternal conscious torment, the original meaning, the one known to Jesus and Paul still holds, protected from harm, safe. And that needs to be our emphasis, not all that other stuff. Let me end with a story. I think I might've mentioned a couple months ago, a close encounter I had with a black bear up north. Well, <laughs> it, was my, it wasn't my last one. So my latest close encounter happened last Sunday. Uh, I, I, was, I was up north with uh, my wife, Julia. She's got this great cottage up north, and it's, got a, it's on a lake, and it's surrounded by a deck. And we had figured out that you can get one of those fire pit things that you can have a little fire, a little campfire even on a and a deck and the sun was going down and we were out there and pretty much the sun had set. Julia went into the into the uh, cottage to get some things. And I this is a, this is a lesson. I'm out there this beautiful natural scene and I pull up my phone and I was I don't know doing my uh words to friends game or you know whatever it was. And I hear what I think are footsteps coming along the along the deck and I'm like, "Oh, Julia's Julie's coming back, and I turn my head, and there's a big black bear, like literally, I am not exaggerating, five feet away from me. Now, they say, if you see a, a, a black bear, you're supposed to like make yourself big and make noises and all that, but that's if you're like 50 yards away from the black bear. They don't really tell you what to do if you see a black bear and the black bear is five feet away from you. Now, I had an air horn because of my other experience with the black bear, and but I couldn't remember where the air, you know how things go into slow motion when you're in a moment like this and I'm trying to figure out, am I supposed to jump up and scream and scare the bear away? Or will that alarm the bear and he'll attack me? I knew you weren't supposed to like run away because that'll just provoke them to run after you and they're a lot faster than you. So what I did is I like, I moved slightly and that big black bear just turned around he looked at me and I imagine he thought he's old, he might be kind of tough and there's still plenty of berries around here. 
and he turned around and he went down and he kind of loped off. Finally, I got my air horn out and about 30 seconds later, I blew the air horn. Uh, it was loud. What's my point? It's scary to be very close to a black bear. You want to avoid the experience, which brings us to our reading today that we'll close with. It's a vivid picture of Sozo, of a particular kind of protection from harm or safety, what Jesus is about in the Gospels, that word Sozo, over and over, Sozo, and it's connected to things that Jesus is doing with people. Jesus had a vision of a future age that he received from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. He didn't make this vision up himself. It wasn't original with him. He was passing on what he had received. Isaiah, who spoke prophetically in Isaiah 11, which I'm reading today that Avery did, of a time when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lamb would be safe. I think of about, we have a family in the church, the lamb family. The wolf has always been safe lying down next to the lamb. The point is the lamb will be safe lying next to the wolf. So this is like a, a future age that hasn't yet dawned. It's a poetic picture of the future age that we are called to work for to begin to usher in. And it's really not so much about other creatures. It's, it's about the safety of humans with other human beings. A time will come when those who would normally be terrified aren't going to be terrified anymore. A lamb close to a wolf won't be terrified, will feel safe. A child by a viper's nest won't be terrified, or its mother won't be terrified, its father won't be terrified. The child will be safe. We might call this a Jewish utopian vision because so often the Jewish people were on the short end of the safety stick. They were the lamb and the Assyrian empire or the Babylonians or the Roman empire was the wolf that they were lying next to. Israel was the child living next to like the viper's nest, but it wasn't gonna stay that way. For too long, too many people have not felt safe in communities of faith. For too long, too many people have been terrified by readings of scripture torn from their original Jewish context to mean what they were never intended to mean. So we need to return to the original vision of Jesus in its original Jewish context. The Jesus who wants to bring sozo, protection from harm. The Jesus who spoke as a Jewish prophet in Israel using Jewish idioms and the stories and images of the Jewish prophets, the Hebrew prophets, like this highly symbolic and poetic picture from the prophet Isaiah. This is the hope for the future that animated Isaiah and Jesus, and it can animate us. We can picture it, we can hope for it, and if hope is doing what hope does, we can work for it in the here and now. That's the purpose of picturing the future. So we can work for it in the here and now. It can shape the kind of community of faith that we can become, a place not to terrify people, but a place of safety, of protection from harm, God helping us. So I want to close just by reading again the 
reading that Avery did for us. Let it sink in this time and then maybe close with a prayer. This is from um, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, starting at verse 6. Now just picture this, if you will. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox and not oxtail soup. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child will put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. O Spirit, who uh, covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. We yearn for that day when those who are terrified now will feel safe wherever they are. And we pray, O oh Spirit, that you will empower us to work toward that future here and now. We pray that our little community of faith could become God helping us, a place where people who maybe in the past were terrified by the whole prospect of being in a community of faith will come to know a sense of safety that they perhaps didn't think possible. We pray that all of us would have the experience, even inside our own heads, of feeling safe with God and feeling safe with one another, feeling safe in this world. We ask this in the blessed name of the Spirit and of Jesus who reveals to us God. Amen. Amen.